Welcome to Where Next, Conversations with Matt Project Office, a design studio that crafts physical products for the digital age, bridging the gap between people and technology, the material world and the virtual. Where Next is a new podcast series tackling the role design can play in shaping our everyday lives. Each episode, we invite an expert panel to pull apart a pressing social issue and discuss where design may be able to make a difference. Thanks everyone for joining us for the conversation with Matt Project Office. Today we're going to be looking at the topic of design as consultancy, which we've given the slightly provocative subtitle of Our Designers Done With Stuff. Now the idea is that in the past I think lots of people will have had a fairly recognisable idea of what a designer is and what they do. So you're maybe thinking of someone who shapes a product for industry and they receive royalties from that and so on. Now, we can debate as to how accurate a portrayal of what it was designers were doing even back in the sort of mid-20th century that is, and perhaps we'll cover that during this episode. But particularly today, there's a sense in which the field has expanded far, far beyond that. So you have a huge number of practitioners now whose design practice doesn't necessarily result in concrete objects or even concrete outputs like graphics or so on. Maybe they work more as consultants, perhaps they're designing systems, strategies, workflows. So what we're trying to cover today is in response to those changes, how has that role of the designer evolved? What do we think of when we think of a designer? What do designers mean to businesses today and what do they offer them? How do designers work with institutions or government? And how do designers see themselves and the work that they're doing? So to kick us off, I'm going to introduce the panel, which is drawn from across all different areas of design. So first of all, we have Nick Rolls. Hi, Nick Rolls from Universal Design Studio. I'm creative director and my background is in interior design. My work at the moment is mainly around physical and digital realms, I'm looking at the intersection of the two and trying to bring life and shape to intangible things, moving beyond novelty of digital experiences and trying to look at them from a spatial behavioural point of view um, and the other way around. Most of the things that I do try to sort of foster emotion and ideally resonate with people. Thanks, Nick. Next up, we have Natsai Audrey Chiesa. I'm Natsai Audrey Chiesa and I am the founder and CEO of Faber Futures. My background is architecture, but I founded Faber Futures um, in 2018, an agency that operates at the intersection of nature, design and technology. I would say that our practice uh, engages industry and institutions, multi-sector brands, even with ecologically driven models for holistic innovation. And so our context is that biological media is pointing towards the possibility of new systems and models that have the potential really to enable planetary flourishing. And so at Faber Futures, we're really trying to cultivate the relationships and nurturing connections that are going to be key to building out alternative systems for the futures we need. And so The work that we're doing is pretty sector agnostic from cultural institutions, including the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum, exploring the the sort of cultural ramifications of a a world where biotechnology becomes all encompassing 
to folks within the genetic engineering industries recently working with Ginkgo Bioworks to produce their residency and a YouTube channel called Ferment TV. And so the work sometimes also takes us into R&D. We have developed over many years different technologies around bacterial fabrication with microbial producing pigments, microbes producing pigments for dyeing textiles. And more recently working with the World Economic Forum to help them think about the kinds of stories we want to tell about a world that is being um, changed by synthetic biology. Super. Thank you, Natsai. Third up today is George Garner. Hi. Yes, I'm George Garner. I'm an account director at Universal Design Studio and Matt Project Office. My background has kind of fundamentally been in the creative industry. I started designing when I was 14, I think, and have kind of taken my love for design through the creative process and, and have then moved over onto the, the business side of the agency. And what really fascinates me and working closely with Nick and some of my colleagues here is the impact that our thinking can have on our clients' businesses and not just on their brands. And I think that's going a bit deeper in terms of not just answering a brief with something beautiful, but answering a brief with an output that has an impact on a business output for a brand, their customers, the planet, um, and kind of everything in between. It's no longer a client service person just coming to you and trying to get as much money out of you as possible for a brief. It's about working with our clients to deliver projects that are really fit for purpose for everyone that's going to touch it. So very much resonating with some of the things that Natsai was saying around how we think about the projects that we that we work on and, and how we how we decide what to work on in a really, really meaningful way, rather than just getting a big collection of logos to put on our website. I think it's really important to work with people and brands that are having an impact on people and the planet in, in equal measure um, and really relaying that to our clients to make sure that the briefs we receive are inherently meaningful. Thank you very much, George. And our final speaker today is Afaina Dion. Hi, my name is uh, Afaina de Jong. I'm an architect and the founder of uh, my studio, Afarai. Yeah, I started my studio in 2005 because I wanted to do architecture, but not like in the <laughs> kind of traditional sense. I was very much interested in kind of the boundary between, not even between, but the boundary in which kind of, you know, art and design and spatial practice come together. And yeah, I think over the years, I've kind of been developing a practice that is very much interested in, you know, kind of designing for those who haven't been represented in spatial form. I think the basis of the studio is very much lies within feminist theory as well. I mean, I, I would like us to be a studio that does projects in which we hope that we can in some way facilitate change. We mostly work in the public realm, so public institutions, municipalities, musea, and uh, yeah, it's goes from kind of autonomous art projects to pavilions to exhibition design. We recently designed the slavery exhibition at the Rijksmuseum where the Dutch contribution uh, and the architecture biennale in Venice. And I'm also the head of the MA department contextual design at the Design Academy in Eindhoven. Super. Well, Afina, I'm actually going to stay with you for the first question, in part because of your work at Eindhoven and in that educational context. And I was curious, with the sort of young designers you have coming in, how do you think they see that role of the designer? What kind of people is it attracting? Are you still getting students coming in who have 
a more traditional view that you know they're going to be industrial designers or creating objects or projects or very concrete outcomes, or have things shifted a little? What what do you see on the course at the moment? I would say there's definitely a shift. Uh, I see a very wide range of practitioners coming into our MAs, you know, and that ranges from of course, industrial designers, but also architects who want to practice differently. Uh, we have um, neuroscientists, art historians, software uh, engineers. It's a lively bunch. But I think what everyone is in a way looking for is to engage in critical design practice. So I think, of course, the object in some way is there, but it's more about narrative, more about developing a critique through design so there you can use design methodologies of course there's also a spatial element um, but yeah it definitely I see it going beyond kind of the luxury object of desire yeah and that's it I'm going to turn to you now and see how you see this because as you set out at the start you did uh, architecture initially which is a very recognizable field everyone knows that but then your practice has gone much more into biotech and areas like that and I think for lots of people that that will be a surprise to them they won't necessarily know you could be a designer in that area and what it means to design in that field so how how do you see your work and how how do you see uh, design as a whole Maybe it's useful to answer that question by saying how I ended up <laughs> in biotech. Um, it, and it was a very clear connection to me, the role that designer, uh, designers need to play in biotechnology. When I was a student on material futures, post-architecture, I went to Central St. Martins and enrolled on the then called Textile Futures Masters. And it was an invitation to come down from the architectural scale to a more human bodily scale, exploring um, materialities. And I was very interested in how technology was changing our material landscape and that these technologies uh, at the time were being put forward to us as, you know, sort of game changing because scientists were going to re-engineer living systems to create new materials. And these scientists were calling themselves designers. Uh, so I found a natural affinity to to their practice because what they were saying is, you've gone from the architectural scale, now you're dealing with materials, but we're going to design the genetic pathways that produce those materials. And so for, for me, it became necessary to posit the question to the scientist in that context to say, for what world are you designing that genetic pathway. And so the critical round comes in very quickly. So the role for the designer in biotechnology is to help articulate the wider context in which um, science and tech is happening to develop out these new systems. It's there to bridge worlds and scales that nobody can feel that they're operating autonomously from the, the wider systems at large. But I would say that it's very difficult to have the scientists, and it has been, understand why it's important for us to be thinking in these terms, because they are operating in fundamentally different contexts, with different incentives to the work that they do to incorporate it. So, so much of our work is based on just telling that single story, that the thing you're doing in the lab has to connect to the real world. How do we do that? You need design. 
George, I wonder if you could speak to us a little bit about how familiar some of what Natsa was saying there is within your work, because, you know, in some senses, MAP is a more traditional studio. You know, you do industrial design, but you, as you were saying at the start, it's a little bit more complicated than that. You are trying to take account of context and to work with companies and brands in an interesting way. It would be great to hear how some of those ideas play out in your practice. Although maybe the context is slightly different, we find some of the very similar scenarios that um, Natsai has kind of touched on in the clients that we work with when we think about um, working with clients like IBM, for example, were some incredibly, and I'm sure everyone on this call can resonate with working with some people that are far more intelligent than I am um, and some of the things that um, creative explorations that they go through, whether it be IBM working through um, their new quantum computer, for example, is taking such a detailed, comprehensive, scientifically driven message and refining that down into something that makes sense for kind of different tiers of people at the end of the project. And I think trying to help our clients understand that that's a really important journey that we need to go on. One an initial from an initial process point of view of how do we build a design project that is going to deliver something at the end of it whether it be a piece of hardware or a roadmap for your next for your next product how do we develop a, a language that transcends the incredible discovery work that's gone into this um this product through a piece of hardware or or um experience that not only delivers what it needs to deliver from a functional point of view from a scientific point of view but also is understandable from a from a physical aesthetic point of view because they're two very different things and two things that can be considered in silo very often but they are things that have to be digestible for the person who's operating it or the person who's viewing it or the person who's building it because if the message of why that science has been um, explored in the first place isn't shown through the physical form of whatever we're creating, then we're not doing the science justice in the first place. So I think too often we've been in situations where there's an incredible amount of scientific research that's gone into a product. So even if you look at an iPhone, for example, the amount of technological development that's behind that screen you look at is something that most of us can't comprehend. So I think it's about finding the sweet spot between explaining the the richness behind that science in a way that people can understand without overcomplicating it and, and alienating people that aren't scientists. So um, that's a specific example around how we've explored that in the past, but I think it's really, really key for us to understand who the audiences are that this thing is trying to engage with at different levels so that we can build a design story that touches all of those notes throughout, whether that be our client, the scientist behind it, or or the end user, for example. So, um, yeah, I think I think being authentic and meaningful in the way we build those stories through physical design is is really really important. Just to go back to Natsai's point about design being a bridge, I really love that notion. We at Universal we work with a lot of specialists, like IBM, for example, or curators at national museums, and these people have a wealth of knowledge. And it, it's very naive to think that we can come in and through shaping something or drawing something, we can solve all of the challenges with conveying that thing to the wider world. In that sense, I think being a designer is someone who in a way doesn't have a specialism, but actually can understand things and has distance from things and therefore is able to make connections and see ways of pushing and pulling people to be able to get them to a point of positive outcome is a really true. And I, I think why it's becoming more relevant um, to businesses as well. So it's not just about, as we said at the beginning, designing a beautiful thing. It's actually about 
How do you have that relationship with the specialists? Where do we provoke them? Where do we see things that they don't see? And how do we take that and actually start to kind of synthesize into something that has a level of interpretation to it? And we're using our emotional and creative intelligence to do that. I'd love to try and dig into that a little bit more if we can, as to what makes designers as a profession so suitable for doing that kind of connection work, because that's something which has come up in what everyone has said, this idea of you're making bridges between disciplines and you're making bridges between uh, audiences as well and drawing it together. But what what is it in designers training or I don't know, in particular skill sets that the field seems to attract that makes that possible? Why Why is it that designers are good at that if, as you say, you know, you're not necessarily experts in those individual fields that you're connecting up? So, so what's kind of doing that work? From my point of view, I think it comes down to being comfortable with the unknown, which is a slightly weird thing to say. But when I see other um, areas of expertise, people have really defined quantifiable and qualifiable ways of sort of expressing what they know. Whereas design, I think generally people are quite comfortable with dealing with the unknown and working towards something, not quite knowing where it's going to lead to. So it's about, you know, taking all of this information in and being able to have some kind of um, interpretation of that the whole time, knowing that you're going on a kind of path um, and being comfortable with, you don't quite know where it's going to end whilst you're doing it. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's, and to Nick's point, it's an openness and a comfortability with like knowing that you don't know everything and being completely fine with that. And that the clients or people that we want to, it doesn't even have to be a client, it could be a collaborator or a colleague, or they're going to know more about something than, than you know about it. And I think that's an incredible almost power to have in that being completely fine with the fact that someone can fill in the gaps when, when you don't know the answers. And if neither of you can fill in the gaps, then you speak to people who, who can, right? And I think that's where we get the most meaningful outputs of any project is not with, it's not with closed doors and, and high walls. It's, it's about, um, reaching out to people that are in, um, communities or backgrounds or, or workplaces or anything that we may not necessarily be exposed to because the way anyone reacts in one, in one space or with a single product is going to be different from the next person. And you're going to find that the way someone reacts to a specific project brief is going to be different to the next person that approaches it. So I think that richness in interrogation across different types of people is, is so valuable. And for me, that's what makes me come back every day is that I get to speak to people that are going to put me on the spot, right? And say, um, well, have we said that in the right way? Or have we thought about people in the right way here? Or have we challenged our client in the right way there, I think, um, and, and honest and, and authenticity behind saying, I don't know, can, some, can someone help me and we'll create something, create something great together. I think that's an incredibly powerful thing to, to harness. I, I think architects suffer from the same thing that we know a lot of little parts <laughs> and we don't know anything as a whole. Um, but I actually quite like that, you know, and I think for me, the basis is uh, of everything is curiosity uh, and then discovering something new, but also a willingness to tell a story and to attract people to what you're trying to find out. 
Uh, and at the same time, you know, like I uh, mostly, I also, I, I do my autonomous things, but projects, but also I have a lot of clients, but I think at the basis is always to give unsolicited advice. <laughs> I can't help it. Uh, and I think that's also often quite good. And I think uh, in students, what I try and we as a team try to encourage is that same curiosity. Uh, but then when you go into it, uh, yeah, to also use a multi multitude of ways of exploring, of, you know, doing research. Um, and then how do you translate that? And uh, I think another thing is I also like beauty as a thing of you know as kind of a language to engage people you know i think that is definitely something that uh, we all appreciate here at where next we like to tease apart the big questions facing designers now and in the near future like how can we nurture the next generation of design talent and ensure that the future of the discipline is fair, accessible and representative of wider society? As such, we're delighted to promote the Arda Young Creatives programme from the Design Museum London. The Design Museum recognises that the creative industries aren't as diverse as they should be and wants to contribute to a positive change. Every year, the Arda Young Creatives Programme welcomes a group of young people aged 14 to 16 living in London, who come from underrepresented backgrounds and guides them to explore all aspects of design and how it can be wielded. Through working with established and emerging designers, the group learns about design processes and methods through hands-on workshops, conversations, collaborations and co-designing opportunities. Participants also meet their mentors, who can help guide them towards a career in the creative industries, whatever path they may choose. But don't take our word for it. Here's some thoughts from last year's cohort. One thing that I can take from this program was that uh, all of us are designers in some way. The program has definitely widened my skill set and encouraged me to follow a career in design. For me, what I think was uh, involved is that I was able to get, gain experience from uh, experts in the design industry. This course has made me really confident that I want to pursue a, design, a career in design and it's actually given me quite a lot of self-confidence. So, if you're a young person or a mentor feeling inspired to get involved, head over to Instagram and search at Arda Young Creatives. That's A-R-D-A-G-H Young Creatives. How easy is it to persuade different fields of this value of design and to get your foot in there? Because, you know, for a field that's used to work with designers, a brand is going to say, OK, yeah, no, I can totally understand the value of this person coming in and say designing this product because I'll be able to sell more and that will be great. But like, for instance, when you're working with, say, scientists, when you're working with businesses in a different way, maybe doing more consultancy, how easy is it to get them to understand what value you can bring? Because in a sense, if you're coming in and saying, oh, well, my value is I don't know that much about this field, so I'm more open and connecting, you, you could easily imagine people going, what are you talking? I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay like a non-expert to come in and do this. So what, what's the route in to sort of, to begin to get that, your hooks in and make a, and make a start? And that's, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experiences with biotech here, because maybe that's a good uh, case study. 
It's an interesting question. It's very live for us. We're working with folks right now who get the gist. If you say to them that I've, I've summarized everything everyone said um, so far, curiosity, courage, humility, beauty, narrative seems to be what we're talking about. And we can put that in a deck and say to the client, this is what we can do for you. Or this is the how, this is the journey we're going to take you on. And they can say, okay, that's great. Let's, let's hire these people to help us feel for the thing that we're looking for. Um, but those terms still feel quite nebulous. And I think one way that we found is um, super helpful uh, is to actually empower the client with the toolkit to figure it out for themselves, as opposed to coming in and, and saying, this is what we're going to do with you, uh, or this is how we're going to tackle the problem. We just need you to sign off on this stage of the project, this stage of the project, this stage of the project. Rather, they become participants to trying to figure out the question for themselves. And what this does, if it's going well, is it builds trust. It, it builds trust because um, what the client is able to understand about curiosity um, is that it's not a skill set that only we are bringing to the table. It's a skill set that they have. It's just they haven't figured out how to unlock it for the problem that they're trying to solve. And that's our job. And as long as we can show them the keys to that door and they step into it themselves, then suddenly it's okay if you say to them, oh, we don't know which direction we're going. We're on this journey together. Um, you've, you've made them co-conspirators, um, so to speak. So I think it's really important to think about how we build trust with clients um, who who not don't necessarily even know why they've asked us to do the work with them um, and, and that part of building that trust is to put them in in the in the middle of it and um, it's to empower them with the, the the tools the frameworks to help them articulate precisely what it is that they're searching for because i think most of the times people don't quite know what they're looking for particularly in in our line of work where so much of the um emphasis is on how do we bring creativity into the business of science <laughs> um and and you know things like uh, uh, beauty uh, are often times the antithesis of science, unless if you're talking about ingredient formulation, um, because that's the stuff that doesn't matter. But if you can help articulate why beauty um, can be a vehicle to think about a company's values, for example, um, then you can you can arrive at a, a better understanding of it. But I think what I'm trying to say is you have to take the client on the journey, but it's not a journey that they are passengers to it's that they are mapping it out with you and, and that requires tool building for trust we've had projects in the past where i think we've been approached to design something and it's a very tangible literal thing and i think unfortunately because design is visual um, and beauty is is you know a topic within that people think that just by making something look great you can kind of solve all of the problems so it's sort of, it's difficult in that sense. And it's also difficult when you get engaged on a project where you know that there's more to be done. You know, you need to look at the op, you know, operation side of a business. You know, you need to look at the culture within that business. You know, you need to kind of broaden that horizon massively, but actually all they want you to do is kind of choose, choose the right table or paint the wall the right color. It's our role to kind of drill into that and actually take the clients on a journey. So not, it's not about education. It's exactly as you were saying that side. It's about making them partners 
and actually collaborating with them to make sure that they understand why we're doing what we're doing. They understand the value of asking those questions and making things probably a bit harder than they should be, because ultimately that bigger picture will be much better and the solution will be right. It won't just be painting over the cracks, whatever you call it. And that's not always easy. You know, we've had clients in the past who half of the business understand that and half of them don't. And that's where it gets really difficult because you end up as a designer trying to design actually how you're going to engage with the client rather than what the project is, you know. And I think that's like, to your point you made um, earlier, um, Ollie, around um, it depends on the kind of business or person in that business that you're, that you're engaging with. I worked on a project not so long ago, which was designing the interior of trains for a train operator. Um, historically, it had always just been a selection process through from engineers. Um, and when the um, four or five years ago, pre-pandemic, when the when the train industry decided they wanted to compete with airline, it was a huge culture change in that suddenly our design proposition has to change massively to compete with a form of transport that if you want luxury, you can literally have as much luxury as you want. Whereas um, on onboard onboard train services, you, you can't really get that aside from maybe a maybe a warmed up lasagna and a and a and a lukewarm um, can of Coke. So I think when we it depends on the people we're engaging with, and often we have to understand that when we when I think about a culture change like that, people have been working in an industry for twenty years where things have been done a very specific way. You have to be emotionally intelligent to Nick's point in the fact that you can't just walk in a room, tear up the rule book, and say you've been doing it wrong your entire career, because that that is going to annoy people. Um, and from a client relationship point of view, it's going to put um, it's going to put you on the offensive straight away, which isn't which isn't what you want. These these big cultural changes through projects like that, for example, are ones that may take five to 10 years to fully um, get the richness of, of delivery that you want out of them. Do you have to structure your studio differently to, to kind of support that work? Because, I mean, George, you mentioned earlier, you said, oh, I in the past, designers perhaps weren't very good at doing this more collaborative, participatory work with clients. I, I wondered what's changed, because I assume we're suggesting that designers are better at doing that now. And, and what kind of supports that? Do you, do you have to work in a different way? Like, what, what's triggered that shift? I mean, I should caveat, I am generalizing. Not all, not all designers have been, have been bad at that. Um, I just mean that I, I think to the point that that's I was making at the start around how we welcome them into the process from the start and not just receiving a brief, creating a proposal, receiving a PO and then disappearing for six weeks. I think there, there are really tangible things that we can do to build into um, project plans like um, the amount of workshops we have and the amount of times that we're leaving simple things like leaving our studio and working in their space or, or, or really th simple things like that that break down the human barrier to any work that, that we're creating. I think we've gone through a period of the last two years where every meeting has been on Zoom. And I think I'm personally really enjoying being back in a room with people that can challenge you in, in a way that you might lose across a, a video conference. So um, I think there are a number of things that we can do to change that. And I think a big thing is transparency across the levels within our studio. It's not just directors turning up to meetings and presenting beautiful decks to clients. It's about showing the juniors, midweight, seniors, all the different people that worked on that project and brought a richness to it. 
that you may not see if you just have one person turning up to a meeting presenting a deck each week. So I think there's all those different things that we can do to break down barriers. So they can understand where that work's come from. And then they understand the richness of thought that's got in, gone into it, the, the diversity of backgrounds, the different types of people, which I think is really important when you're trying to validate a design. If the same person turns up every week and presents it to you, you're probably going to be a bit like, well, are all these opinions just yours or are you actually creating something that, that has differing opinions throughout your process so there's a million things we could do but there are a few things i think i've found work Athena, what do you find draws people to your studio and wanting to work with you because i mean your website is really interesting when you speak about the role of research and theory in the work and weaving counterculture into architecture and an interdisciplinary approach what typically do you see people coming to you wanting well i mean i always hope that they that we have um you know, that they share some of the values that are entrenched kind of in the philosophy of my studio. And I think, yeah, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of clients and educating clients and collaborating with clients. Uh, I think also at Design Academy, some of the designers that we produce and also my own practice, it has been kind of developed around certain themes, around something, some research that is, you know, like has a long, <laughs> long development, right? So I think sometimes there are specific issues at stake and I, I call that kind of a critical design practice. And I that out of that kind of autonomous work that's being done, you know, clients or institutions are actually attracted to it because they share some of those values or interests. I think what works for me doesn't work for someone else. And sometimes you definitely are in a certain niche. But at the same time, I also like this idea of things becoming more and more specific. You know, I think definitely coming out of this kind of modernist ideal in which kind of, you know, these general or generic kind of solutions, you know, we see that that just doesn't work in a very complex world. So I actually, I quite like that. And um, that also means for a client that they have to educate themselves because otherwise it's very hard to engage with each other. What What's that process like of the client educating themselves in a way? Because if, if you're saying, oh yeah, maybe they're attracted to certain shares common values but they're probably very different types of institution you know like a design studio is not necessarily like a big corporation or even like a public institution so so what is that kind of um period where you're kind of rubbing against the two organizations and knocking up against one another and trying to find that common ground how, how does that work yeah, that's interesting. It's kind of, a, yeah, a back and forth, you know, but, um, and, and I think in that sense, it's also what we have been talking about, you know, aesthetics play such a big role because sometimes uh, a client is attracted to the way, you know, like you, it looks. But then if you kind of dive into it, then actually maybe it turns out we don't have anything in common. Uh, yeah, that also happens. But I, I think for me, that is very important that we kind of share something, you know, we share the same values. We want to go into the same direction because being a, a small to mid sized studio, you know, like I need good clients to do a good project. 
right so if that is not there that connection is not there the the foundation is not right the timing the money then i already know it's not going to be a successful project and i might as well not like do it at all um but yeah that's also i mean you can call it a luxury but it also has implications for your business right because you're picky <laughs> uh bigger clients have uh have special needs sometimes it's a balance that you have to find. Some of our best clients, or my best clients, I should say, or best projects even come from a long relationship with a client. It's not even, you know, like I'm kind of hitting clients up saying, oh, you know, let me take you out for dinner or whatever it is. It's actually people who we just engage with and start talking to. And from that, you can start to, to kind of work around each other and understand what that shared point of view is. And it doesn't even have to be that you're from the same world or the outcome is even going to be the same for both of you. It's kind of, there's some common thread, which is keeping you together. And from that projects begin to bubble up and areas of interest start to bubble up. Um, I mean, that's how at universal, the, the Google web lab project started. It was, it was kind of from a conversation around the topic of digital and physical, the topic of how do you engage people um, online and offline? And actually this project kind of emerged, um, just from that. And, you know, for me is one of my most successful things I've worked on because I think it comes from a place of passion, something that, you know, I'm interested in and the client is, is inherently interested in as well. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. Being picky. We're working on a project right now. And one of the ways in which we decide who we work with is vibes. Is it good vibes? So, so we have the core team, which is good vibes because that's been established to your point, Nick, over many years of collaboration and constant building out of new ideas, relationships, right? And then you have to build project teams about it. And it's just, you know, so important to work with people who, who you like and who are respectful and who you can be respectful with, people who don't take the piss, basically. <laughs> um, because I, I found that there's a lot of labor in repairing and maintaining fraught relationships with clients, with other collaborators, that it detracts so much from the work and the onus becomes mine, <laughs> you know, leading a team uh, to make sure that I can protect my team as much as possible for the stuff that completely, you know, compromises the, the very hard work that they, they put in because they want to, because they care. So this being faithful, I think, to gut instincts is, is so critical to deciding um, whether or not you, you take on the, the client. Um, and also in building relationships with people where there's no project in sight. And I think it works the other way around as well. I've worked with clients who have had really bad experiences with designers or agencies who also don't share that, you know, common value or, or point of view or whatever you want to call it. And that's where it gets really difficult for them because, you know, as George, you've talked about, they just end up with these kind of glossy presentations handed over, which are, you know, sort of meaningless. And that they're not having those really critical conversations with the designer and, and doing that collaborative process, you know, talking about the, the vision for the project. What are the, what are we trying to get to here? How can we both work together and support each other, educate each other? It is, it is a partnership. It's not so much of a, we're paying you and we want you to come back and give us the solution. I think that's probably where this topic of kind of design as a consultancy is coming in. 
because actually people are getting a bit fatigued with this idea of a big agency who has all the answers and can take away all the problems. And I think actually clients want to get involved. They want to help figure out what the answer is. Um, I mean, that's my experience of it anyway. What kind of longevity does that more holistic approach have? Because I suppose if, you, if you're brought in to just work on a single project and it's done and dusted, that's one thing. But if you're being brought in to sort of do more that consultancy role, hope, help them overhaul things a little bit, change the way they're working. I, I, mean, I don't know. For me, there would always be that worry of, oh, will they just backslide the moment we stop actively working on this, you know, because clearly you've been brought in because it's not something they naturally do on their own. So are, are there ways you can try and make sure that this sort of more consulting work uh, that's going on has that legacy and sticks around afterwards? But a lot of what we do with our clients, especially at brief stage, is taking a step back and questioning why they've sent us the brief they've sent us. And is it the, the thing that they initially, their initial understanding of what they think the output should be? Is it the thing that will solve the problem that they've got or is it something else that they need entirely? And I think to Natsai's point earlier about building trust, that is probably the first point at which you can do that. And when we're building those roadmaps for a client in the initial stages to whether what the first brief is, what the knock on things for post that that product or that space or whatever it is, I think it's about being really honest in the fact that everything that a client does is not necessarily going to have your name or your studio name attached to it. And I think through those roadmaps for the next two, three, four, five years, you're working on the client identifying the things that they need to do internally and the things that they need to do with other partners that aren't us, I think really helps build longevity into the work that you're creating. Because if you're just like, yeah, we can do that, we can do that, we can do that, it, it, clients very, very quickly see through that. Um, and it's about building an ecosystem for them that allows them to harness all the power of that great first thing that you've created by engaging with expert partners in different areas as that um, either post-launch or post-release or post-opening, whatever whatever the end um, deliverable was. I think there's also a different reality if you think about longevity and kind of design as consultancy. I mean, many more in the, like independent design uh, practices that revolve around certain very specific issues you know like I, I i also feel that the relationship can be very different right it's not what they bring to the client it's like they have an ongoing practice that is diving deep into something and the clients that come in kind of are players in developing their practice you know like i think it's not only like what the designers bring to like larger uh commercial clients like i think it's also changing the other way around where you know larger uh organizations step into smaller practices and actually they have they they have interesting partnerships and i think those are way more formed around like the independent design questions that 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 is being kind of um uh, investigated within you know those practices so um i feel it can be it can be neat, not even both ways you know i think there's a whole realm in how these kind of relationships uh, uh play out and you know yeah is longevity something that we're looking for or what happens in the moment i mean exists forever and others build upon it yeah, I love that idea of longevity actually being about setting a client kind of on a course or disrupting them in some way or provoking them or, you know, uh, providing some kind of transformative event or whatever, whatever it is. 
that challenges what they do or makes them change something that actually then sets them on a different track. So it's not about solving them. They're all their issues now and forever. You know, it's actually just about opening up something to them and allowing them to operate in a different way or think in a different way. And that little butterfly moment, whatever it's called, can, can actually have massive knock-on effects as well. Um, so there are clients that we've worked with in the past who are completely different from um, who they were 10 years ago when we worked with them. But there is a kind of inception point where you sort of think, actually, yeah, that thing we did really did start to change the way they're thinking about who they could be or how they engage with people, or, you know, et cetera. I have a very sort of practical question uh, to an extent in terms of how as designers do you communicate this work that you're doing? Because right, projects which you've done in the past are often really important for ones which come in in future. And if it's say you've designed a set object or something like that and it looks good, that's really easy to communicate. You can show that and maybe people have a sense of what you do and go, great, we'd like to work with them. If, on the other hand, the work you're doing is much more consultative, much more holistic, there seem lots of problems, right? Because for one thing, an existing client might say, no, you can't talk about that publicly. You can't put it on your website, say. On the other hand, it might just be really nebulous. What materials do you share? There might not be great photo opportunities or something like that. And alternatively, a lot of the values which we've spoken about, and I think someone mentioned it before, you know, they, they risk sounding quite nebulous. If you're there saying, yeah, we as a studio, we can bring in creativity, open it. Uh, it's sort of very open and discursive. Someone looking at that might think, okay, but kind of everyone says that, that or... I don't know what to make of this. So how, what do you think are effective ways to communicate this kind of work, which, which can show a little bit what you're doing and, and let people in slightly more? I'm, I'm going to be very honest and say it's, it's very difficult to communicate it. How do you demonstrate what you do so that people can decide whether or not they want to bring you in to help them out on something? I, I think that the clients who we, we interface with understand the that that landscape in a very tangible way that the, 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 what, what i think what what matters for them is us being able to demonstrate um very specific um outputs related to projects that don't have to be public facing um in there are results that are validated because they exist in the public realm but that logically you can see how that could actually um, move the needle for a, a previous client and, and that brief. I think that um, reputationally as well, um, it helps that you don't necessarily need to say this is the work we did for this person, but that you can say we worked with um, this this client. And I think the community is so small that everyone sort of knows everyone anyway. So that's an easy leap um, to to make. What's harder is us demonstrating the work that we do to the creative community um, b- because that's where the stuff gets really nebulous because it exists behind a paywall <laughs> effectively um, and for a lack of having products that can be featured in um, your design press it becomes very difficult even for journalists to know um, what the story is if they want to cover us so we do have some projects that are more product oriented to open up uh, dialogue between the behind the scenes stuff. I call it the 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 gray the gray stuff. <laughs> um, but it's it's a constant challenge, I think, to bring that to the fore in a way that 
um, doesn't break any obligations to the client. It's a challenge. It actually really devalues what we do. And I think people misunderstand it. So I have this constant struggle when I'm talking to new clients or introducing how we, how we work, where we have these kind of beautiful, glossy photos. But what we try to do, I think, is engage through topics. So we engage, we don't even necessarily talk about the brand or, you know, what the project was, but it's kind of what was our driver for that project? What were we interested in and how did we work with the client to kind of allow that thing to happen? And where, what was that journey? So it's much more about process. And I think when it gets to the really intangible things where we've done projects for clients where, you know, there, re- there isn't a kind of literal deliverable, it's much more about kind of engagement and, and provocation and, and that kind of thing. I think our background in delivering real projects is really helps because we, we're not just an agency that can kind of talk the talk. We actually say, well, we know this because we did, you know, we've done a crossrail project and someone, someone on their way into work goes on that train and then they has a coffee in one of the cafes we've designed and they go to work in one of the workplaces we've designed and they drink from a cup that we, you know, we've got so many touch points that actually it allows us as two agencies to start to work in that intangible nebulous world, but we can kind of, we can qualify it because I guess we've been there as well. So it's it, with one hand, we've got all of these beautiful projects and with the other, we kind of have to then be quite careful with how we talk about them, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's a funny one. And I ask in part because we're, we're speaking at the moment with uh, a group called All in All, which is a network and they connect up with not-for-profits and charities. And a lot of the work they do and they say, which is most valuable in a way, which is actually really helpful. It's just so sort of non-visual and non-suited to communication. They say it will literally be things like a charity won't know how to make this into a PDF or what the dimensions are to make their posters. Like, so we'll, so we'll connect them with someone who tells them how to do that. And they said, like, it's obviously like you can't put it on the website. We helped someone make a PDF. But said, like, if you're looking in terms of what was helpful for that, like, group or audience, doing work like that was really impactful. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, and that's a really small scale example, but it's interesting what kind of goes missing based upon what is communicable and what isn't, I think. Yeah. And I think that comes down to, I mean, we all hate that word creds, right? It's, it always comes down to that, like beautiful to next point selection of beautiful images that we all use to present to potential new clients or, um, and I'm speaking from a really practical point here of that link between what a client's brief is, what you're presenting to them in an initial meeting and what they then assume they're going to get out of it or all the assumed detail that they think you're going to go to in, in every single project. And I think. It's something that is really, really hard for agencies to do because often you're trying to cram as much information, but as, as little content into one page as possible. And it, it literally depends how that lands on that person on that specific day as to what, what they take out of it. So um, I think it, it's a really hard balance to strike. And I know it's something that um, Nick and I have been working on recently around how we create that balance of of engagement through initial conversations, through credentials and past projects. It's, it's really, really hard. To, to get it right. Um, and it's something that's co- continuously changing. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our time for today. Uh, so thank you so much to everyone. Pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank Pleasure. you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Where Next, a podcast made in collaboration with Matt Project Office. The series is hosted by Matt, along with me, Ollie Stratford and India Block. <laughs>
It's produced by Evie Hall, with editing from Oscar Yell. To catch our next episode of Where Next, you can follow Matt Project Office on Instagram at at mattprojecto. That's O for office. And you can also subscribe to Desenio Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. 